change. The Borg, they coolly assimilate entire civilizations, entire systems, in a matter of hours. They don't change. They metastasize. What is this? The Vintage Picard Podcast. It's um, discussion, analysis, debate about Star Trek Picard. All right, good. It's really quite exciting, actually. Very good, fine. I'll listen. Engage. Welcome, Picard people, to episode seven, episode 007 of Vintage Picard, a podcast covering Star Trek Picard and Star Trek at large. Yes, indeed, we are here speaking to you once again. I don't know why I've lapsed into this faux posh proper, I don't know, nonsense. But anyway, so we're happy to be here with you. We are jazzed and all set to cover us some Star Trek, as it were. And uh, I I feel like I should introduce myself to you. Identify yourself. Yes, okay. I am Gary McComiskey. I am a longtime Star Trek fan, not not an expert uh, by any stretch, but somebody who has watched Star Trek for many years and uh, I like to think knows my stuff. And, uh, of course, my co-host on this journey... Hi, I'm James Ajazi. Yes, I too am a diehard Star Trek fan, but not an expert either. So we're just here to have fun and enjoy ourselves. And how you doing, Gary? I'm all right. Yeah, I'm all about the fun. I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, as we've said in the past, we take Star Trek seriously. Ourselves, not so much. <laughs> I wish more people felt that way, as a matter of fact. Fun times. Here's hoping. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so so how are you sir we're doing all right and really excited to talk about the latest episode of star trek picard to me i thought it was the most exciting so far of the series you had a chance to watch it then that's that is conducive to an episode of this particular program i would say <laughs> yeah it's better than just pretending and letting you do all the talking and oh yeah that's right no i agree uh-huh good, good point exactly. yep mm-hmm i noticed that yes sure sure uh-huh Right? Oh, I loved it when he did that. Yeah, no. Oh, yeah, I can't stand them either. Uh huh. <laughs> yep. That, that, that's that. That I mean, you know, it works for late night sidekicks. So, Andy Richter has made a career out of it. Not to slag Andy Richter because I think he's a funny man, but uh, this is this has nothing to do with Star Trek. As far as I know, Andy Richter has never been on Star Trek. <laughs> as far as I know, I don't think so either. But um, with those drops that you just <laughs> made, you don't need a co-host now. So I think you just do the whole thing by yourself. Well done. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. Well, working off of the uh, the the work started. By Bruce Maddox, I am developing an artificial co-host that can heuristically learn how to yes me throughout the show. Well, that's what you deserve. You don't deserve some dim witch dragging you down. So well done. <laughs> this is foolish. But uh, I, I'd I'd rather not talk so much about that. If you don't mind, I think maybe since we have a lot of ground to cover, maybe we should jump right into all of the coverage of 
Season 1, Episode 6, The Impossible Box. Oh, my, my card's getting worse again. Uh, the Impossible Box. No, no, it's not there. I don't have it tonight. Agreed. The Impossible Box. To box. The Impossible Box. <laughs> to Borg. The Unborgable Borg. You, you did it again. Because that's exactly what I kept thinking with, with that title. That... To fly on the SS Van Halen. <laughs> to uh, keep it in the CBS family. I, I wasn't a big fan of Two and a Half Men, but there were a couple of episodes Man. that... Yeah, that, that I My watched. wife and I watched it quite a bit, so okay. I, you know, that's fine. I'm not offended that you didn't like it. I'm just but, sorry. Continue. Anyway, the uh, the the young man Angus, uh, I forget his name offhand. Angus um, Burke, I think maybe it's been a while. No, it's actually Angus Jones. Ah, okay, my my mistake. Thank you for the correction. Good old Google. Mm, indeed. Who's Angus Burke? I don't know. I didn't look that one up. <laughs> All right. Well, if you know who Angus Burke is, please feel free to let us know. <laughs> maybe you went to high school with him. I don't know. I definitely didn't. The kid that played Jake. Uh, there was one episode when I think he was supposed to be in a play. Uh, yeah, Don Quixote, and he was singing that song, and they made him sure, sing as it you do poorly. Uh, so that's all. I kept hearing his version of that song with the 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 title of this episode. So I, I apologize for taking us down that road. Borg, 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 Borgly, Borg, 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 Borgly, Borg, Borg, Borg. Would you believe, if you haven't watched it, James, would you believe that John Cryer is now on Supergirl and he is portraying Lex Luthor? No way. Yes. Yes, sir. Oh. And I I think you will be shocked to learn that he actually does a really good job. Yeah. Uh, the character he played in Two and a Half Men was very annoying, but the, the man himself, John Cryer, I remember watching quite a few of his movies in the 80s and 90s, and uh, I thought he's a fine actor, so good for him, because that's not fair getting typecast as an annoying character. Not at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, uh, he does a good job of it. He's quite bald, which, you know, you want out of any good Lex Luthor. And uh, he's, he's uh, entertaining. But again, we're not here to talk about John Cryer and Supergirl and the impossible dream of Don Quixote. We're here to talk about the impossible box. That's a little better, right? A little better? I'm getting yeah, there? Possibly. I, I thought you were fine. But... All right, cool. So, so we begin in a hallway. Picture it. A hallway in a home. It's a dark and stormy night. Lightning crashes outside as the storm rages on. A young girl comes out of her room, emerges into this dark hallway, clutching with all of her might to her precious squidgy. Daddy, father, she cries, desperately surging. Down the hall, she creeps, steadily onward towards a door. The door opens. It is a greenhouse of some sort. Plants line the walls and the center portion until suddenly she is jolted awake with Soji. And in fact, we do come to learn that it was a dream. It was all a dream, Papa. 
It was a dream. Soji awakes in her bed, lying next to Narek, and she is clearly somewhat disturbed by this dream that she's just had. Uh, it is, we come to learn, a recurring dream, but she does not want to talk about it. It seems she would rather talk. I, I don't get this relationship, James. I never have. I don't get this relationship between Soji and Narek. It, it's clear that there's still some friction from the last time we saw them when uh, Narek basically insulted her and called her a liar whilst in the middle of flirting, which is really not a good move. But, you know, given the fact that they're lying in bed together and, uh, you know, kind of sweet talking each other there, it doesn't seem to have had that much of an effect regardless of what dialogue they try to slip in to justify it. I'm with you on that one. I don't I don't understand relationships in the future, I suppose, either between uh, Romulans and synths. But OK, yeah, <laughs> your classic fish out of water, star crossed lovers story, James. And for crying out loud, will Narek please take a shower already? <laughs> Wash that hair. You filthy uh-huh. animal. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe maybe it is Romulan custom not to wash your hair when you're courting uh, or at any other time. I don't know. They always seem to have pretty greasy looking hair. They always have. But um, another custom of the Romulans that we are just now learning about is the fact that James Romulans have at least three names. Ridiculous. I say at least because Narek tells us it's three, but why would I believe a word that that guy says? So, for all I know, they have a name for every occasion. But let's just stick with the three that we're told about. You see, James, Romulans have the name that they use for outsiders. The name that they use for insiders is, I guess, what he says. Although that that seems like, uh, that doesn't seem like a good term. I assume he just means other Romulans, but that's like, eh. And then there is the true name. James, the true name, which you only reveal to the one you give your heart to. Aww. (laughs) Now, a couple of things on this. One, who gives you these names? Do you choose them for yourself? I mean, I can speculate that your inside name is your family name, your given family name, since your family, I would imagine, are the insiders that you, you know, you're speaking of. The outside name you could conceivably choose for yourself when you come of age to do so. I can see a whole ritual surrounding that. But the true name. Now, if the only person who knows your true name is the person that you give your heart to, who gives you your true name? Where does it come up with? Like, where, 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 where does it, do you, do you just... Do you just look deep into your heart and make something up? I don't, I'm confused. I'm very confused about that. Yeah, I, you're asking the wrong guy because I'm just as confused. So I don't know if it's the Romulan mommy and daddy, hopefully, or do they not trust them either? I don't know. It's Romulans, James. They don't trust anybody. I'm still trying to get over that false front door nonsense. Yeah. I think you might need to get over that, James. Okay. That's, that's what, three or four episodes ago? That that ship has long since warped away. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't grasp the, uh, the, the, the multi-names thing. There is one thing, though, with this name business. 
one thing that I do want to give the writers credit for. And that is the fact that I had noticed all through the time that we had seen Rizzo and Narek interact that at no point that I could see did they actually use each other's names. They kept referring to each other as dear brother and dear sister. And, you know, when they bothered to actually address each other at all. So, you know, it's entirely in keeping with this idea that Narek is his outside name and it wouldn't be what his sister would call him. And uh, likewise, Rizzo is probably a cover name. And that's not what he would have called her, most likely. So the fact that they didn't use those names in those conversations at any point really tracks with this idea. So kudos to you, Star Trek Picard writers, for, you know, keeping that continuity going. Thank you. Yeah, great point. That's what I do, James. That I drop great points like they're hot. I don't, that's a, that's not a, is that even still a thing? Dropping it like it's hot. Uh, I, I think we have to ask Snoop Dogg if that is. A... I am not of that culture. Certainly not. They're actually that that scene ends with one little cute moment that I did chuckle at when Narek is leaving Soji's room and she wants him to, I guess, stay and continue the conversation. So she calls to him, Narek, as he's walking out and he just turns and says, that's not my name and walks away. <laughs> yeah, that, that was very funny. I agree. Oh, anyway, so from that little bit of humor, we then cut to the SS Van Halen, where Dr. Agnes Gerardi is uh, talking to the Admiral about the demise of one Bruce Maddox and the awful, awful fate that befell him, how, you know, his wounds were just too much to bear. And even though they they desperately tried to save him, he was just overcome and his body failed him. And it's tragic and it's awful. And he died and looming there in the distance. Frankly, I am surprised that the ship is able to maintain its structural integrity with the size of that gaping plot hole that's just hanging there on the bulkhead. Explain. Because... We saw no holograms of any kind on this episode, which is fine because they were overdoing it for a while there. But, you know, what about the EMH? The EMH saw her killing Bruce Maddox. He didn't tell anybody about it. That's what I was thinking, too. And we alluded to that in the the last episode of Vintage Picard. And if you haven't heard that, please go uh, check it out. That there would be some sort of an alarm going off where if someone is dying, there's some alert to let everybody know that something's dangerous going down, trying to save this person's life. So when uh, Gerardi just dismissed it and made it close, that just didn't jive with me personally either, that it would just shut down and that would be the end of it. There would be no alarm, no secondary warning, nothing. And then now she's just lying straight-faced to uh, Admiral Picard, And I don't think Admiral Picard is a dumb man by any stretch of the imagination. So he was just speaking with Maddox when he left the room. And then good old Gerardi did her uh, little pulling of the plug in a horrible way. And now talking about it, it just too much of it is, okay, yeah, you got to suspend your disbelief when you're watching a television show or a movie. But something that's in depth and as detailed as Star Trek Picard and with the audience, your primary audience, that's 
intelligent, I uh, dare to say. Got to tighten those things up a little bit. Just give me some reason that uh, maybe Gerardi did something to infiltrate the system to cover her story or something. But just the way it is right now, if they address it in the future, I'll be cool with it and I'll apologize then. As it is now, uh, I'm not. I'm not buying it. Well, James, it's the 24th century. They address everything in the future. Well, yeah, but future episode. I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm just being pedantic. <laughs> um, no, okay. So I don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds here with this thing because, in the grand scheme of this episode, it doesn't make any real difference. But here, here's here's the problem that I have. The main problem that I have with this thing. It flies way in the face of what my headcanon for how this ship works is. I, I So what we've observed so far on this ship is that it's run by a team of holograms. Rios is a one-man show, and the rest of the ship is run by a team of holograms. Now, my personal speculation is that he can only have one hologram running at any given time because of the limitations of the ship and the computer, and the computer kind of loads the personality program for each individual hologram depending on the situation that's required but nevertheless they are an integral part of the running of that ship now they answer to rios they have to it's his ship he's the captain he's the only official crew member on that ship and i sincerely doubt he would have given like carte blanche status to everybody else on the ship to be able to order these guys around and, and, you know, supersede whatever standing orders he might have or whatever programming they might have. And I have to think a medical hologram, an emergency medical hologram whose main program has to be do no harm, you know, cause he's a doctor. I, I would have to think that if he sees somebody killing another guy, even if his programming is compelled to obey somebody who dismisses him, I would expect him to immediately appear to Rios and say, hey, Captain, just a quick heads up. Dude's being murdered in the other room. Like, there's no other way I can see this working. And I'm just disappointed that they didn't, to your point, that they didn't even pay lip service to the idea of covering that up. Agreed. Totally. And that's, boy, I didn't even realize that. That's an excellent point that yes, exactly. Captain Rios is in charge. That's his crew. And that's their version of being sworn in uh, members of the staff and like Starfleet mentality that you follow orders and you do what's morally right. Even if you are uh, not human, I agree with you a hundred percent that, and that's one of the problems that, that uh, I find with that uh, plot hole. But again, if they're going to approach that and then explain it, okay. But as for now, yeah, I, it's just, I, I really do like this show. I want to stress that I'm enjoying it every week. I look forward to it, as I said last week. But I think this is just another example of them writing to convenience and not to consistency. So I, I don't, All right, I'm going to let it go. About time. Because we have way more episode to talk about. This is like the first five minutes still. So anyway, so into this little conversation that Gerardi is having with Admiral Picard, and you may have forgotten that that was the whole point of (laughs) this tangent, uh, what sparked this thing, into this conversation in butts Elnor, who... uh, (laughs) 
who, who inserts himself and <laughs> asks about the artifact. Uh, specifically, what is it? <laughs> what's this whole deal? You know, please, please give me some exposition about what's happening here. And uh, exposition, in fact, is what we get because then uh, Dr. Gerardi drops some very blunt exposition on the audience about the history of Locutus and how Picard is going to interact with this Borg cube when he gets there, basically. You know, the, 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 the trauma that he has suffered at the hands of the Borg and what we can expect for him to uh, kind of be rubbing up against when we finally do get there. And uh, so he, he, uh, he kind of freaks out a little bit about his past as Locutus of Borg. He gets a little bit of the PTSD there and decides to exit, uh, you know, make a gentleman's exit to the situation. And so as he walks away, Elnor very bluntly in turn turns to Dr. Gerardi and uh, he just remarks that it's clear something is bothering her. And she gets like, she gets her back way up in a pretty tone deaf display of hypocrisy there and uh, informs Elnor that uh, he is being quite inappropriate with his observation and he should outbutt and mind his own business. Yeah, the only question I want to hear Elnor ask Gerardi is if she wants to live or to choose life, or <laughs> whatever that question is before he starts messing people up. I don't like Gerardi at all. Uh, I mean, yeah, she's definitely, if she's going to be a long-term member of this crew, there's going to have to be a pretty convincing redemption arc on the horizon because as it stands right now, she's not, very enjoyable on my television screen. Now, she's no Odo by any means. No. Odo was bristly and gruff, but beneath it, there was a pretty rock-solid strength of character. Underneath Dr. Gerardi is just uh, this wishy-washy, unpleasant person. I don't know. It's Backstabbing murderers, but, but, but I'm sorry to, to inbut. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> That's that's quite all right. So on the other side of a commercial break, we find Jean-Luc Picard in his hollow study. And uh, so he heads over to his computer and he Googles artifact, <laughs> treaty and the Borg. That's correct. And now I must be a crazy person because the first time I watched this, I could swear the computer returned like three billion results or something. But the second time I watched it, I was looking for it. No such thing occurred. So I'm a crazy person who's imagining things. Indeed. But uh, okay, that, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I've, I've made peace with that. Excellent. So what the computer does return, however, is uh, pictures of a Borg cube, the Romulan Senate, Hugh, and Locutus. And one thing that I do have to nitpick is the picture of Locutus that the computer returns, which was captured from the best of both worlds, is reversed. It's, it's mirrored. And I see no reason in universe why they would do that. I know what the actual practical reason is why they did that. It's so 
Picard could look through it from behind and have the picture of Locutus with the Borg implants and, and the eye laser overlaid over his face so he could be haunted by what he once was. I get that from an artistic standpoint, but from a practical in-universe standpoint, it makes no sense. Unless they're trying to skirt Federation trademark law. Oh, um, great catch. I didn't pick up on that, but great, great catch. I, I was taken, I fell for that. I, I, I got the whole symbolism of it and I didn't even realize that, yeah, that, that well, well done, Gary. Yeah, I'm just a pedant, so that's fine. Exactly. But uh, so JLP kind of recoils in horror to theme and we get the theme and there's no real salient information or, or anything that we desperately need to take away from this, except for the fact that this is a non-frakes, James. This episode, the she's a no frakes. <laughs> they got somebody else to direct this time. They did. I didn't write her name down, but whoever she is, she is a very capable director because I think for all of its flaws, this episode was done very, very well. She's a good, but she's a no frakes. I want you to stop this immediately. Anyway, Beta Quadrant. Neutral zone. That's the caption that we get under the next scene of the SS Van Halen flying through space. An interior shot. Rios is playing soccer. You see, James, he's Hispanic. So he's playing soccer. Thank you for picking up on that, too. I felt the same exact way. And I do still resent the fact that baseball doesn't exist in the future of Star Trek. But uh, soccer somehow did. And yes, they are really, really bashing us over the head. What nationality Rios is. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's fine. I don't care. He's a great character and a very effective actor. It just seems unnecessary to me. <laughs> like, don't. It's just, you're. it's too cute by half. And it's unnecessary. If it, I just, I don't get it. But it's not something I'm going to dwell on because the episode then uh, gives us something else to chew on. Namely, it seems to be the middle of the night, but Dr. Gerardi is up. <laughs> and she, she's, she's interested in having, uh, let's say, some conversation. She's up for some small talk. Uh, specifically, small talk about how awful space is and how she doesn't understand how Rios can enjoy it. And uh, so he counters this argument by getting her good and liquored up. And uh, then then they kind of suddenly and without preamble engage in a little deep space smooching there, James. And so uh, they <laughs> they they take a, a brief pause and Dr. Gerardi opines that she's never slept with a captain before. Rios is is slightly taken aback by the implications of that. And he recovers himself enough to say that he recommends it. Agreed. So, uh, you know, if the captain recommends it, <laughs> I don't know, man. And she, she then, uh, neither of them are good at this, but Dr. Gerardi is really bad at this. She, uh, I, I think it's probably supposed to be played for awkwardness, but she, she then tells him that she has a superpower. She can sense mistakes as she's making them, which I mean, as a guy, if a woman said that to you, after offering herself to you, that would, you know, I mean, it's never happened to me for a multiple of reasons, but I have to think if it had, that would do wonders for my ego. 
Yes, then I'd understand why after working out you'd take a bolt of liquor instead of some water or a power shake or something. So, okay. <laughs> anyway, so uh, she she then proceeds to make a little more pillow talk by telling him how awful she feels in every conceivable way. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> and then they uh, they go off for a tumble, one presumes. So... <laughs> Oh, fun times. We then head back to the artifact and we discover Rizzo, presumably in Narek's room, and she is playing with his rhombics cube. I love it. Very well said. <laughs> this kind of puzzle box that he's constantly fiddling with and uh, presumably the titular impossible box. And uh, she she talks about how you know, it's dumb. And he says, you just don't understand it because you don't have the patience to open it. And there's metaphors all over the place there, but I don't have the patience for them, frankly. Uh, they talk a little <laughs> bit about uh, Soji's dreams. The fact that she dreams is a wonder to them. And they try and figure out why she would be built with such a function. And Narek figures that it is a subconscious that was built into her to reconcile the conflict between the belief that she is human and the evidence to the contrary. So he's decided, yeah, this is our way into finding out the information that we want to know. I'm going to start messing with her head some more. There's a whole bunch of innuendo that's really uncomfortable, as always. And then, uh, although not as much as usual, I will give them credit for a modicum of restraint there. And then the box opens, and uh, which, again, is a metaphor for something. And they kind of give us the impression that discovering the information that Soji is keeping within her head that she doesn't even know about is a mere inevitability. Back to the SS Van Halen. And the good Admiral Picard is out talking with his crew. He's cooking up a plan. He's concocting a plan of action to gain access to the artifact. I'm just, I seem to be in danger of slipping into that from time to time. I don't know why it's a thing that's just going to happen. So I think we're all just going to have to roll with it. I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. Good. So, uh, you know, Dr. Gerardi, who's very, very honest and upfront and forthright, as she's proven so far so many times. She says, I've got an idea. Let's all pretend to be scientists. And Picard's like, yeah, no, that's I'm going to stop you right there. That's actually a terrible idea. So please stop talking. Uh, no, actually, what we have to do is we have to follow the way of the Kuat Malat. And Elnor is like, yeah, I know what that is. And he's like, yes, we have to be open and honest. And we have to just go in and say, uh, I'm Jean-Luc Picard. And I approve of this request to go and gain access to the artifact. And uh, so then they have to figure out, okay, so how are we going to do it? I have a plan. That's my Picard saying he has a plan. I'll take your word for it. He's decided that he is going to gain credentials from the Federation to be a special envoy to the Borg Reclamation Project. How? Well, <laughs> oh, how indeed. 
it just so happens that they have a resident train wreck on this ship who's capable of miraculous feats of access. Hey, Raffi, what you doing? As it happens, she's getting blind drunk and also high. So, uh, you know, it's nice to have hobbies. So they basically uh, put it on her. Yeah, so we need this access. So go get that, would you? And she reluctantly agrees just so they'll stop pestering her and leave her be. And she phones a friend. She calls up an old captain friend. Uh, We are led to believe that they are, in fact, very old, close friends. And this captain is immediately on edge. Emmy is, is what she calls her. Captain Emmy is is very much immediately suspicious because Raffi only calls her when she needs something, although she contests that assertion. But, uh, you know, I guess the evidence doesn't lie. So she calls her up and says, hey, funny story. Wouldn't it be great if you could give us credentials to be a special envoy to the Borg Reclamation Project. Now, it's it's not for me. You have to understand. It's, it's I, if I wouldn't ask. If it was just me, I would not. It's for Admiral Picard. Funny story. I'm actually with him right now, and he's on some dang full adventure. You know the Admiral. He loves to go on these harebrained crazy. Anyway, so he needs to get onto that cube, and she's like, "Yeah, that that's." That's no, that's not going to happen. There's no way that's going to happen. Why would you even ask that? We cannot do that. That's a terrible idea. I'm sorry. No. And Raffi's like, yeah, it's just that he kind of had his heart set on that. So can we turn that no into a yes? And, and, and Emmy's like, yeah, I don't think you were listening to me just now. And so Raffi's like, yeah, that, that is unfortunate. Um, I I really, if we don't get the credentials, I don't know what we're going to do in three hours when we actually get to the Borg cube and start an intergalactic incident. So that might be a problem for the Federation. She's like, you what? Turn around. Don't do that. And, uh, and, and Raffi's like, yeah, I'm afraid we can't do that. That's it. This is happening one way or the other. So, you know, credentials or not. Um, that's, that's on you, you know, but yeah, who minds a little bit of war with the Romulans? That's been there, done that. It's fine. It's fine. And so Captain Emmy says, okay, I'll give you the credentials that you're looking for. Um, great talking to you. Never call me ever, ever again. And so here, this is, this is something else that I took issue with James, because Following that, uh, let's say, performance by Raffi, wherein she was able to secure the permission that they were looking for, she looks devastated. Like, you can tell that that cost her something. What she just did, not only did it cost her, you know, a burned bridge with an old friend, seemingly one assumes one of the few old friends from her Starfleet days that she had left, it also cost her some dignity. You know, because she had to be self-deprecating about what a mess she actually is and had to acknowledge that she's not in control of her destiny anymore, basically. And then after this is done, Jean-Luc Picard, who, you know, has already apologized for not being there for her in the intervening 14 years when her life went down the toilet, 
and you know for for contributing in whatever way he did for her current state he's already acknowledged the role that he's played in that and he can see that she's in a very bad way he doesn't go over to her and say Rafi, i know that was hard for you i really appreciate you're doing that for me you are a good friend and i don't deserve you no he gives her a standing ovation he starts a round of applause on the bridge for what she did and you can see that she was absolutely disgusted i mean i i think that's like i don't think he would do that you know i mean i i'm not the writer of this show i can't you know i'm not patrick stewart he knows his character better than i do but personally i think that's a bad call perhaps i should reevaluate that behavior totally agree and uh it was really unexpected I don't know if they were trying to make it light because it was a heavy situation as you picked up on many things in that scene. I don't get it either. I agree 100% that it was uncharacteristic and out of place and inappropriate. And then they tried to make amends with that with Rios taking uh, Rafi back into her quarters and trying to make things right and, and better. And then I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute, that yes, they have a relationship because it was thanks to Rafi that uh, Admiral Picard found Rios. So I don't know if over those 14 years or however long that she knew Rios, that they had a close relationship. But then I was also thinking at the same time, but with the history of Picard, maybe that they were so close with, uh, you know, being captain and and, uh, first officer and so on and so forth, that uh, the pain of Admiral Picard leaving her in the lurch like that was overtaken by the relationship with Rios. But either way, I did not understand that that applause. And uh, I, I don't know if it was just an attempt at humor or whatever the case was to lighten up the scene. But uh, you nailed it on that one, Gary. Yeah. And so, as you said, Rios kind of puts his arm around her and helps her stumble off to bed. While the last shot we see of that scene is an Admiral Picard who is kind of slumped over in his chair and he is... Again, Patrick Stewart is a masterful actor because in one look, he conveys so much. You can see he's both visibly relieved and he's also in way over his head with this whole thing. So, you know, kudos to him for that. Thank you. So we then return to the artifact. And so Soji and Narek are walking down a hallway and he remarks to her, you know, funny funny thing and i i i wouldn't even bring this up but it's just it's it's the strangest thing i happen to be looking over the call logs because you know we keep them because security here is very important you don't want the information getting out they're classified very very confidential very important anyway so um weirdest thing uh we happen to notice that and you're gonna think this is funny Every call that you make to your mother, every single night, every single one of them is exactly 70 seconds long. And uh, isn't that weird? Right? And she she says, no, that that's that's not that's not possible. How can that possibly be? <laughs> I can show you the logs. It's uh, <laughs> well, oh, what a what a funny thing. You should talk to your mom. And, um, and I, geez. I don't know. <laughs> 
So then we cut back to Raffi, who's been helped helped uh, into her quarters on the ship. This this ship, this ever expanding ship, which seems, you know, the size of a large room seems to have this seemingly limitless supply of small side rooms that we don't see doors to or, you know, corridors that could lead to, but they're all there somewhere. I don't know. It's a, it's a magical thing, this ship. So uh, Raffi, Raffi drinks herself to bed and, you know, Rios, Rios is helping her. He's, he's kind of helping to tuck her in and she you know, in a in a somewhat drunken stupor, she tells him about her son. She's like, how long have we known each other? So many years. And did you know I had a son? You know, isn't that terrible to know somebody for so long and, and to, to not have introduced them? And I never get to see him anymore. And he doesn't want to see me. And it's, it's awful. And uh, basically, she's talking about all of the regrets that she has with the way her life unfolded and, and the family that it cost her. And Rios, uh, he, he's a good friend. He's trying to listen. He, he tries to kind of comfort her a little bit. And he, as I said, he tucks her in. He kind of, he, he puts her off to dreamland. And as she's drifting off, the final thing he says to her is, Rafi, nobody gets it all right. And so he, he grabs the bottle of booze off of her nightstand and makes himself scarce. And then we go back to the artifact wherein Soji is calling her mom. Oh, hi, mom. How you doing? Say, is dad around? He's not. Oh, that's a shame. Anyway, so I was wondering about this thing that I, I was... Wondering about... Oh, uh, um, I'm up. I'm up. I'm up. I'm up. I'm up. So, um, what was I saying? Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was thinking I would like to talk to you about this thing that I'm going, she keeps like drifting off almost immediately when her mother talks to her. And at one point she actually stabs herself in the hand to try and wake herself back up. There's some weird computer glitching that goes on with her mother. And, uh, then she just eventually she can't fight it anymore and she passes out. And um, now one thing we learned last week that we didn't mention on the podcast is that it was subtle, but uh, it seems that Soji has in incorporated mom AI. So I don't know if the transmissions that she's making to her mother are actually going to somewhere where there's like a pre-recorded computer program that's shooting stuff back at her, or if it's just something that she's somehow generating internally and she's just seeing, even though there's nothing there. I, I don't know. They don't make that clear, but the, the kind of idea is that this mom that she talks to is just like a, a computer program of some sort. That's basically primary function is just to manage her in difficult situations. So now the moment arrives, James, the, uh, NCC 5150 <laughs> shows up at the Borg cube with credentials intact for one Admiral Jean-Luc Picard, who has an urgent mission to visit the Borg reclamation project. And as they arrive, 
he gets uh, just a tiny flash, a, a sousson of PTSD. And, you know, he, he, he is definitely feeling trepidation about going to this thing, but he knows he has to soldier on and do this thing because, you know, that's what he does. And uh, we, we come to learn that the Romulans are very strict about how they are going to honor these credentials. Only Picard can go. Nobody else. Only him. The ship will not be allowed to dock with the cube. They just have to hang out there in space. He gets beam in coordinates. He's told, you beam in here. You can stay for no more than a day. And then you leave. And so, uh, of course, Elnor wants to come because this is a very dangerous situation. And Picard tries to explain to him, no, Elnor, you can't come. This was hard enough to get just permission for me. So either I can go by myself or nobody can go. There's no Elnor in this equation. And so he actually forbids him. He says, no matter what, Elnor, you cannot leave the ship. And Elnor does not actually answer him. He just kind of storms off in a kind of a teenage huff. I think that is the uh, emotion we are meant to get from what he is conveying there. And speaking of people who are emotionally immature, we go back to Soji, who wakes up in her quarters and uh, she she knows something hinky is going on. She digs out of the bottom of her, I guess, uh, Footlocker, that's what you call such things. Indeed. And she she takes out this cute little lunchbox. And if you freeze frame on the lunchbox when she puts it on the table, it is an Adventures of Flotter lunchbox. Now, that may not mean anything to you, James, but it was something that was referenced in Voyager as a popular series of children's tales, like uh, children's hollow programs. So that is what they are calling back to. The, the blue guy on the lunchbox is the titular flutter in this equation. So, uh, yeah, it, it seems, you know, it's a cute little thing. I guess in the fiction of her childhood, she grew up watching these things, one assumes. And so out of this lunchbox, she pulls a whole mess of, of pictures, of old pictures, mostly of her and Dodge and her mom. But, uh, you know, there's a bunch of family pictures and she starts frantically. She like she grabs at this this little metal bar looking thing with some some glowy lights on it. And she starts scanning basically everything in the room that she owns. The pictures, old journals, old childhood drawings, seemingly that are hanging on the walls. Uh, even her her little stuffed squidgy that she pulls out from under the bed. And every single thing that she scans reveals a probable age of 37 months, including her little necklace that uh, Dodge had the twin of, the, the, one, the silver one she wears around her neck with the two interlocking rings. That's the symbol for the whatever research that Maddox was doing with the data neuron cloning, whatever. Um, that. So she's kind of devastated and doesn't know what to think because none of this makes sense. And James, I have to tell you the thing about this that makes the least sense to me is the idea that somebody 
a professional would go to a place of work like this Romulan Borg cube and they would set up their quarters and hang their own childhood drawings <laughs> on the wall. What kind of a psychopath does that? It's not important. Uh, yeah, um, even in a dormitory for, for college, I don't think anybody would do that either. So maybe it was a little bit over the top of the Romulans or whomever trying to cover up what's going on and with the implants uh, of, of memories and things like that in, into uh, Soji's mind. So a little bit of Blade Runner capabilities in there and sort of Matrix too for referencing other sci-fi movies. But exactly, I, I thought that was kind of odd. Also with the lunchbox, it made me miss my Dukes of Hazard lunchboxes from when I was a little boy because I don't have them anymore. <laughs> Oh, that's a shame. It is. No, so I, I just I don't think this is the Romulans, James. I think this is all Maddox. I think this was Maddox created her uh, yeah. and fabricated her entire identity. So he set her up with the the lunchbox full of pictures and the childhood drawings and journals and everything and the teddy bear. And she, uh, you know, I, that's my read on it because it makes sense to me that since he was the one who sent her to infiltrate then he would have packed her off with an identity. By the way, also, Squidgy, her little stuffed thing, maybe you had a different read on this, but to me, it didn't look like any Star Trek species or animal creature that I recognize. The thing it looked most to me like was the Goron species from The Legend of Zelda. I'm glad you brought that up too, because I was thinking that also with the dream sequence, because she was clutching the same stuffed animal, it made me think of the Star Trek animated series where, um, and even in the original series too, where they were talking about Spock, that he had a pet when his parents visited. Journey to Babel was the uh, episode for the original series. And then in the uh, animated series, you saw the pet. Uh, and it was like, you know, Dr. McCoy was making fun of him for having a quote unquote teddy bear. But it turned out to be like a saber tooth polar bear, horrible, scary monster thing. So I was hoping that, that that's what she would be clutching, even though it has nothing to do with Vulcan or whatever the case was. But excellent point there, too. I, I didn't see any correlation or correlation, I should say, with uh, that stuffed animal, like which I didn't even pick up on because, again, I didn't watch Voyager. That was a nice little touch with the lunchbox. But it seems like that uh, stuffed animal really is taken totally out of context in the Star Trek universe. Dear listener, if you happen to know what that's supposed to be, please let us know. You can email us at vintagepicard at gmail.com. You can tweet at us, Instagram, Facebook. You can get us at Vintage Picard just about everywhere. Inquiring minds want to know. And uh, so if you caught it, please tell us. But we go back. I was going to say actually back to the cube, but we were already on the cube. So we, we move then to a different part of the cube wherein Jean-Luc Picard has just beamed in. And so it is a, this weird, dark, isolated corridor where the walls are moving for some reason. And there's all these really dangerous looking catwalks. And uh, he, so he's, he's all alone. There's a very creepy vibe to everything that's going on. He's hearing voices. He starts seeing like flashback images of Borg assimilation, his and uh, others, because I accidentally freeze framed it on some woman who was wearing a, a red Starfleet uniform and laying on a, you know, Borg assimilation slab, I guess. 
who I didn't recognize. So I don't know what that was supposed to be. Maybe it was something he witnessed while he was there. But um, yeah, so he he flashes back to all these experiences with the Borg. And then he's suddenly overwhelmed and he's kind of down on a catwalk and, and, and he looks like he might fall over. But he's also uh, simultaneously still being bombarded with with images in his head of being assimilated by the Borg. And he's surrounded and these Borg grab him and he says, no, let go of me. And then we hear a voice. They're trying to stop you from falling. And we see that it is not the assimilated Borg. It is two ex-Borg that are holding on to him to keep him from tumbling over the side. And in fact, we discover that the voice who called to him was that of Hugh, Hugh, who you may remember as the Borg with a name, the Borg who Picard had an opportunity to genocide the entire species with by using him as a living weapon, but opted not to when he developed a personality. The Borg who further displayed that personality by breaking away from lore at the end of uh, Descent and kind of going off on his own to try and form his own kind of liberated Borg collective, as it were. Hugh, who we saw a mere handful of episodes ago, who was trying to get Soji in contact with Ramda and the crazy Romulans that were formerly assimilated. The very same Hugh who we have come to know and love as a cherished character from the Star Trek canon. And in fact, Picard also seems to know and love him because they, I mean... I'm sure they had a very important relationship, but the way that he reacts to Hugh when he sees him is like, I mean, he, they literally embrace. He acts like he's, he's seeing one of his best friends who he hasn't seen for, you know, many, many years. And I'm, I've no doubt that they haven't seen each other for many years, but I don't remember them being all that close. Maybe I'm misremembering this, but this seems like a little bit of artistic license on their part, which, I mean, it's fine. But Yeah, because Hugh is Jordy's friend. What's Picard doing? <laughs> that's, that's true. What the hey? Yeah, JLP. No Bogarting your crew's friends, man. You've got enough of your own. <laughs> Seriously, man. Go glom onto Q or something, or uh, Boothby. <laughs> If he met Boothby, that I could buy. <laughs> Boothby's probably dead by now. Possibly. Although, you know, in this 24th century future, people live a ripe long time, so you never know. Anyway. <laughs> I, okay. So they, they, they then proceed down a corridor, uh, doing the old classic walk and talk, and Hugh is trying to impress upon Picard that... You know, the Borg are not what they used to be. They, these are not the Borg that assimilated you. These are the ex-Borg. They are liberated from the collective. They're not those creatures anymore, those, those terrifying creatures. And you are not Locutus anymore. Yes, I have completely recovered. We have all broken free of their influence. And it's important that you know that. And Hugh also has to wonder... It's great to see you, but why are you here? So Picard explains about Soji and Hugh. Hey, I know her. I know the person that you're talking about. 
and uh, he's like, yeah, there, uh, there's some hinky stuff going on with her. You know, there, uh, there's, there's, there's definitely cause for suspicion surrounding uh, the way that the Romulans are treating her. The road from legitimate suspicion to rampant paranoia is very much shorter than we think. Something's up. And in fact, we see some of the way the Romulans are treating her when we then cut back to Soji having a conversation with Narek in her quarters. She's showing him all the, the pictures and stuff. And he's like, none of this makes any sense. I'm freaking out a little bit here. And he says, well, you know, have you ever considered the fact that, uh, Possibly everything you know is a fraud and and your your whole life is implanted memories. Why would I consider that? No, no. So so, you know, he's really turning the knife in there and trying to disrupt her in every way possible. And it's working, I guess. He's good at what he does. But I have to wonder, James, I have to step out here. And this is something that I've been wondering for for weeks now watching the show. But I think it's really come to a head here especially given what Soji has learned. So she's learned that many of the things that she believed to be true are seemingly false. There is a giant mystery surrounding everything that she is doing there on the cube and her whole background. She doesn't know what to believe and who to trust, except for some unknown reason, she totally, completely, and implicitly trusts this Romulan who basically sidled up to her one day and immediately fell into bed with her and has been messing with her head ever since while admitting to her that he is being dishonest with her and deceptive. Did Maddox intentionally program her to be stupid? (laughs) Well, maybe this is something that doesn't change in the near future, but uh, at least in today's reality that Sometimes females go for the bad boy. I don't know. I can't explain it. I don't know why, and I don't believe it, but that's my only explanation. Okay, but even if her AI is, like, programming her to think like a human being, there's still a highly advanced supercomputer under the hood there. You would think that even her subconscious would be able to put together some critical thinking and analysis and steer her in the right direction here. This is like suicidal, what she's doing now. Also, we didn't get to know Dodge for very long, but she didn't seem nearly so gullible. She seemed to at least have something of a handle on what's going on around her. I miss Dodge. (laughs) So do I. Concur. All right. So... I guess the, the the question of why she trusts him is irrelevant at this point. The fact of the matter is she does trust him. And wouldn't you know it, he happens to have right up his sleeve something that might just help her. He's got a secret Romulan meditation technique that no outsider has ever seen. It's for Romulans only. It's a Romulans only club. And he says, let's try it. So, so I guess they, they set about to do just that. Elsewhere on the cube, Hugh and Picard are uh, touring around a, a Borg hospital of sorts. It is the place where the Romulans kind of uh, tend to the injury and care of the ex-Borg and help them try and reintegrate and regain whatever... I was going to say humanity, but that's a little specious. So regain whatever sense of 
organity. <laughs> That's that sounds dumb. But, you know, whatever sense of individuality and self that they may have once had, they want to try and help them with the healing. And uh, just as an aside, James, looking around at the quality of medicine in this place and and basically just the idea of what goes on there. It seems like I was inadvertently right several episodes ago when I opined it is, in fact, a Romulan HMO. Yeah, well done. So, yes, pat myself on the back. Ow, 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 ow. Okay. So Picard is actually impressed by this whole setup. And, you know, rightfully so, because for whatever faults they have, they are trying to do right by these ex-Borg. And uh, Hugh kind of drives home the point that the Borg, you know, they're really at, at their core, they are all victims because something that we know, but we don't really internalize, I think, with the Borg is the idea that they were all at one time individuals who were assimilated against their will. So even though once they are assimilated, they become these mindless automatons, that's not their choice. That's just what was done to them by the collective. And so, uh, you know, it's it's something that other people don't really understand. And as a result, they even though they're free now, they still see themselves as being enslaved because they are at the mercy of the Romulans, who are the only people in the galaxy who will have them at this point. And uh, so Hugh kind of whispers forebodingly to Picard, we still have a queen, but our queen is now a Romulan, which I have to wonder if that's just metaphor or if we're going to find out that Rizzo is like the secret Romulan Borg queen. Oh, wow. I didn't think of that. I, I was definitely thinking just uh, metaphorically. I mean, it could go either way at this point. But um, so while he's kind of on this role of getting Picard to, to think about how the Borg are being treated, he decides to twist the knife a little more and try and guilt old JLP into taking a more active hand in advocating on behalf of the Borg to the rest of the galaxy. Try and get their point of view out and, and you know, try and get them a little more rights and freedom and just honest, basic decency out there. But that's for after. Right now, they have to go looking for Soji. So they do. And then we head back to the Van Halen where uh, Rios is in Rafi's quarters. Wakey, wakey, I've got coffee. And so he wakes her up seemingly specifically to tell her that she owes him money because they had made a bet about whether or not Soji would still be alive. And she is. So Rafi owes Rios two strips of latinum. And so then they kind of, uh, you know, they banter a little bit. And then Rafi's like, why is she still alive? What do they want out of her? Which is just kind of left hanging there. And dun, dun, dun. then we, we don't we well, I mean, we know what they want from her, but they don't resolve that because we go back to the cube and we happen upon Narek and Soji once again, who are outside of this Romulan meditation chamber. And there's some mook outside of the door. Is it the same mook who wouldn't let Hugh and Soji into the Romulan asylum several episodes ago? Or is it a different Romu mook? <laughs> I think Ra it's a different Ramuklin? Irrelevant. It's a, that's a, that, it's, that's not working. This must stop. It has gone too far. Um, anyway, so whoever he is, Narek throws his considerable weight around, 
figurative. He's he's a svelte gentleman. So he's, anyway, so he he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to get in there. She needs to get in there. You need to not ask any questions. You know, basically, don't you know who I am without saying, don't you know who I am? So they get in there. They they get they get all up in there. And so they they go in and he immediately tells her to take off her boots. And knowing where this is going to go in the future, James, I, you know, upon a second viewing, I had to wonder, are they setting up some kind of diehard situation here with her taking off her shoes? <laughs> nice. Picked up on that perfectly. Uh-huh. But uh, so I don't know. We'll see. But so now that they are alone in this intimate setting, Narek can be himself. And he tells Soji his true name, which uh, is apparently Ryan or something along those lines. <laughs> it was like Shreon, but, you know, Ryan, basically. Um, I don't know. That's a weird name for a Romulan. And that's irrelevant, though, because I'm not I'm not going to name shame the Romulans. That's good. So they they decide. All right. The place where we have to start here is by exploring your dreams, 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 dreams. So Soji starts explaining what her dream is all about. And we see a Rizzo in some kind of surveillance center who is observing this whole deal. Very, you know, kind of 1984 surveillance state menacingly whole deal. You know, you know how that thing works. And Narek tries to stress to Soji, you are in control of your dreams. And they, they, you know, while this is happening, they're walking along the meditation path. Back to Hugh and Jolie Picard, and they arrive at Soji's quarters, but she's not home. She's not home, James. Where could she possibly be? She called out sick. Where else could she be? We know where she is. They don't know where she is, but they will know where she is eventually, but not yet, because Hugh pulls up this, like, 3D schematic diagram of the Borg cube out of seemingly nowhere, this holographic uh, map, but she's not on it. They're masking her signal somehow. That's weird. Something must be amiss. Back into Soji's dream. And, and little, little girl Soji, she enters the greenhouse slash workshop. And Narek tells her, when your father yells your name, don't wake up. So she doesn't. She goes in and, and he, he, he desperately urges her to look around and tell him what she sees. She, see, she looks past him. His face is all blurry. She can't make it out. But she looks past him and she sees there on the table what he's been working on. It's a wooden Soji doll. Exactly, Gary. And yeah, as she's peering through the orchids with the symbolism there, uh, she yes, sees... Yes, orchids, right. Yeah. That is a good callback, James. We learned the significance of the orchids back in episode one when Daj told us that that's where she derived her name from. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, then she looks like Pinocchio. It's, um, you know, the, uh, the the Soji version of Pinocchio. As if we didn't get it before, <laughs> they bashed it over our head one more time. Yes, Pinocchio, a little bit of symbolism there from a Star Trek standpoint. Data, you may recall, was referred to on a couple of occasions as Pinocchio, uh, specifically in The Measure of a Man, the episode with Dr. Bruce Maddox, where Riker is appointed as the 
prosecutor in that case and uh, to drive his point home about how data is not a life form. He is merely an artificial construct. He turns him off and he says Pinocchio's strings have been cut. So that 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 brings back, all, you know, all kinds of symbolism and and uh, meaningful uh, whatever. So close. And the, the other thing, though, that I found ironic about this is with the Soji doll or, uh, you know, wooden construct laying on the table. You can once again think of that idea of how Pinocchio's strings have been cut. However, this whole thing is an orchestration by Narek wherein he is pulling her strings. Nice. Very good. Yeah. I should write for this show. No, I shouldn't. That's a terrible idea. Indeed. I'm glad you're writing for this show. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I write my own material, James. (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. So she sees the doll. What else do you see? What else do you see? Look around. Tell me what you see. So she looks up and there is conveniently a skylight in this workshop. And even more conveniently, she sees some very unique astrological features. She sees two red moons and a seemingly endless supply of lightning, which, you know, wow. Wouldn't it be awful for the Romulans if she looked out the window and she saw a blue sky and a single sun or, you know, like even two suns and uh, and and just, you know, a neutrally colored sky. Good thing that that she happened to see some very easily identifiable astronomical features. How convenient. Uh, anyway, so they got her. Ha ha. They know, or at least they will know where she's from and therefore where her home planet was, which they probably could have learned with a whole lot less hassle if they hadn't killed Maddox. But that, that's that's neither here nor there. So they, they got her. Her utility has reached its end, James. And that's a problem for her because uh, Narek is, is very happy to learn this information. And he gives her a deep, passionate kiss. But what she does not realize is that this isn't the kiss of a lover. It's the kiss of Fredo. He's kissing her goodbye here. And uh, he tells her in no uncertain terms that she is not real. And then as he exits, he, he puts down this cube, this impossible box, this Romulan puzzle box that he's been working on for the whole episode. And immediately after he exits the room, they lock her in and the box opens and starts spewing deadly radiation. What a terrible, terrible predicament she finds herself in. It sure is lucky for her that she is actually secretly a super strong Android and uh, her mom AI, I guess just by coincidence picks this moment of extreme stress to activate her who could have seen that coming. And so she starts punching through the floor and is able to escape the deadly radiation. And they cannot stop her from doing this because the room is filled with once again, deadly radiation. It's kind of a classic catch 22, James. Uh, You're irradiated if you do and irradiated if you don't. This is foolish. Speaking of implausible coincidences, Q is actually, again, he's, he's looking up her location on this holographic cube and it, it suddenly pings back into being because I guess she has escaped whatever masking field 
they had laid over her and she's she's between levels and she's moving fast and Picard knows what that means but there's no time to explain but he needs to get to her ASAP so he says to Hugh can you get me to her yes yes I can now here's what I have a problem with with this whole thing they manage in spite of the fact that Soji is running horizontally at super speed across the length of this Borg cube, somehow this old man and Hugh are able to plant themselves almost immediately in the exact spot where she decides to drop through the ceiling. Ridiculous. Like, within feet of her. I find that a bridge too far, personally, but I guess that's the magic of television writing. Exactly. So they, they find her... She drops down. She's like, who the heck are you? And Picard's like, there's no time. You must trust me. Please trust me. And he begs her. He's like, I'm a friend of your father's. I knew your sister. Please. He's begging her to let them save her because the Romulans are hot on their heels and she's in trouble. Although, I mean, given, you know, the fact that she's a super strong killer android if her sister is any indication. I don't know if she's in that much trouble, but, you know, whatever. And she hesitates, and she hesitates, and then he whips out the necklace, and he's like, but what if I showed you this? <laughs> he doesn't actually, that he's, he's, it's more of a beseeching kind of, please, look at the necklace. You have the same one. And so she, she sees that, and she reluctantly goes with them. And uh, they, they manage to escape, and they leave the room um, before the Romulans break in. And we very briefly cut back to the SSVH where the crew is tracking Picard's whereabouts. He's gone silent. They know he's in trouble. And they turn and kind of give a pointed look at Elnor, who is suddenly very, very attentive to the situation. I wonder if that's going to lead to anything. Hmm. So again, Picard and Hugh must also have super speed because they are able to elude a cube full of Romulan commandos who are chasing them down. I agree it would be difficult, if not impossible. And they wind up in a, a secret compartment. Hugh is able to open up what we come to find out is the Queen's Cell which is a special secret chamber, I guess, on every Borg cube, wherein the Queen can, can reside one assumes when she's on the ship. The whole Borg queen thing was always a weird concept given what the Borg were. I'm not going to get into it here, but uh, they, they both, Picard and Hugh both know what it is because even though they've never seen it, they've never been there, they were Borg for however long and they both instinctively know all about it. How convenient. So Hugh, Hugh brings him there and why? Because this particular queen's chamber has a special gateway. It's like, um, what it reminded me of is, is the, the Iconian gateways that uh, they encountered early in, well, in the next generation, they encountered an Iconian gateway, which was basically a portal that could transport them anywhere in the universe, seemingly, instantly. And uh, then... There was also a Deep Space Nine episode where the Jem'Hadar found one and they had to go destroy it because Jem'Hadar, with access to a portal that could instantly transport them anywhere in the galaxy, 
kind of a problem. You you can see the potential there for 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 you know a minor inconvenience. That is an understatement. Boy, I totally whiffed on those two things. <laughs> Big Deep Space Nine fan that I am, I thought of the city on the edge of forever. I went way too far back with the original series because it reminded me of the Guardian of Forever, where uh, you know McCoy jumped through, and then if you haven't seen that episode, it, it's one of the all-time best. But uh, thank you for uh, illuminating on that, Gary, because I totally, totally whiffed on it. Well, James, I think going way too far back is actually very much in keeping with the spirit of City on the Edge of Forever. So (laughs) you are thematically on brand. Wasn't there also a Next Generation episode where Picard and was something with Ferengi, I think, and they wound up with some kind of weird super transporter that was never used again that allowed him to beam light years and light years away. I have no recollection of anything. I think it may have been the return of Damon Bach. <laughs> that episode. I, I don't remember what episode that was. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm a bad fan. I've let you all down. Indeed you have. My geekdom has failed us all. I'm obviously of no help. <laughs> Apparently my nerdery knows bounds. What? I think you should replace me with a uh, a synth. I'll consider it, but not before we finish this episode. <laughs> Unacceptable. <laughs> I'm not nearly as clever as I think I am. So anyway, uh, uh, so many tangents. Anyway, so Picard calls up the SSVH and he's like, yeah, so we have a way off. I'm not going to explain it now, but you need to meet us at Nepente. And uh, so they're like, wait, what? He's like, okay, I'll see you later. Bye. And so then <laughs> he does like to say that. He, he loves to say, bye. I don't know. It's, it's a, you know, it's a really unusual character trait that they've decided to give him in this series, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> That's a lot better than applauding for no reason at your friend's anguish. So they're like, okay, well, what was that all about? And they look around and they're like, hang on, where's Elnor? And uh, funny you should ask, because we are not left to wonder for very long. Because back on the cube, in the Borg chamber, Hugh and Captain Picard... Admiral. Admiral Picard, my apologies, are beset by a crew of Romulan guards who are immediately dispatched by an Elnor ex machina. And, And James... Given that it is a Borg cube from which he descends, it is a literal Elnor ex machina, which I'm okay with. So uh, they have to leave now, like now, because that was the first group of Romulans. It will not be the last. So Picard is like, okay, Elnor, we got to go now. And Elnor says, no, I'm going to stay behind and cover your retreat. You know, Hugh can cover your portal jumpery but you you need somebody to watch your back so i'm gonna stay here and picard says no i will not leave you again and then he promptly leaves him again i find that hard to believe it's a very sweet sentiment that's immediately undercut i i just i don't understand the writing on this show sometimes point taken (laughs) at least he didn't run off and yell bye (laughs) bye Actually, interestingly, I was watching this with the closed captioning and 
there was a line in the closed captioning that one assumes was in the original script that was cut from the final episode. Right before he leaves, Picard, in the closed captioning, says to Elnor, I'll find you again. Ah. So I think the original scene uh, right before he leaves was, I'll find you again. Bye. <laughs> I can I can see why, you know, they, they decided to go in a different direction there. Uh, what's with all the drama? That's a deep cut. That's a deep callback. Okay. Yeah. Go listen to episode one if you don't understand that one. This must stop. It has gone too far. And so Picard and Soji hop through the portal to their escape. Hugh shuts it down and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to need a few minutes to cover our tracks and close all this up again. And Elnor's like, we, we don't need a few minutes. That's fine. And then as the door closes on the scene and, and cuts Elnor and Hugh off from our field of vision, we hear Elnor say, please, my friends, choose to live. And we know what that means. It means they're going to be some killing. The Borg cube is going to run green with the blood of Romulans. And that is the end of this episode. Uh, we, we get a next time, as we always do. And we see scenes of Picard truly distraught at his current circumstances. He is telling someone how he started off with a crew and a ship and a purpose. And now he has lost everything. I think I know who he's talking to because I think I recognize the hair. But so that that that's for a moment. Uh, we also see that the SS Van Halen is not in great shape because they are being held by a tractor beam coming from the Borg cube. And they have a, a cadre of angry Romulans who are searching for Soji descending upon them. And so then uh, the, the final thing we get in this, well, final definitive thing, there's a series of rapid fire scenes that are thrown at us, which are difficult to interpret exactly what they are. But the, the final like chunk of meat from next episode that we get is number one. The Rikers are in the next episode. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I think that the hair that Picard was talking to belongs to one Deanna Troy. That is my suspicion. Good one, detective. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, that, that's, that's the episode. And uh, real quick, before we jump into uh, what you thought of the episode, because I do want to know. I want to know what thought is. I want you to tell me. No, thank you. Okay. So, real quick, speaking of Riker, we know that the last two episodes got the Frakes treatment. And I read something from Jonathan Frakes commenting on the series and apparently he was approached to direct episodes before he was ever even cast in the show. The original thrust of the season did not include a, a cameo by the Rikers. Uh, they, they were not written in. They were added later seemingly. And uh, one other tiny thing that I think I picked up on, I can't be certain, but he seemed to suggest that the episodes that he directed seven of nine in were not her last episodes that we would see her again. Now, 
it was not spelled out. It was, like I said, kind of suggested based on the words that he used. So I could be wrong. It could be maybe we'll see her again next season. But it did seem to indicate that that was her first appearance, but not her last. So now that that's out of the way, James, I must ask you, it is imperative that I ask of you, what did you think of this episode? Analysis. For as nitpicky as we were on it, so far it's my favorite episode of the series, and uh, I love the way it ended. It was great to see Elnor finally get to kick some butt and show how heroic he is. Gary and I have talked about this in years past, how we always felt bad for Mr. Worf on the Enterprise because he was always being held back. So Deep Space Nine, you got to see what it could really do in, in, in many an episode. So I was happy that Elnor was able to let it loose. And just that last line got me so excited was, was awesome. So that was really cool. I love the action in it. It flowed well. And uh, again, it's, it's good lead up into what's, what's to expect. And uh, overall, I liked it a lot. And I think some questions were answered. Also, too, when Picard was in the Borg cube, that there was, I I don't know if it was an ex-Borg, somebody in the background referred to him as Locutus. Yes, I believe it was an ex-Borg. That came and went, and they didn't really do too much on that. So I'm, I'm enjoying the little seeds and nuggets in episodes that hopefully in the future will uh, grow into something really cool. So overall, I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot and uh, looking forward to the next. You know, I have to say, James, when Elnor was first introduced as a character, there was that kind of line from Dr. Gerardi kind of saying, oh, does does anybody else think that the way of absolute candor sounds really annoying? And I think it's funny and ironic that she actually has become the character who's really super annoying. And Elnor has become one of my favorite characters on the show. Yeah. I mean, I'm not speaking for Gary here, but I'm a shy person, you know, in, in real life, so to speak, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic that we're doing a podcast here, but I always kind of gravitate more towards those characters in books and movies and TV. So I liked Elnor pretty much immediately. And I do love that warrior mentality. Uh, again, talking about Mr. Worf. So that's really awesome to see. Yes, I didn't see Gerardi was going to be this annoying and this hateful, but that's a credit to the uh, the actress that's portraying her and the writing. But Elnor, I, I dig this guy. I, I really want to see more of him chopping people's heads off and, and kicking butt. I mean, I don't need to see him chopping anybody's <laughs> heads off, but I would like to see more of him. I will give you that. And I will also give you that as harsh as I was on this show, as as I tend to be on all of these episodes, I have to agree with you 100%. I really enjoyed this episode. This may have been my favorite episode to date. I'm not sure about that, but I am sure that I can't even put my finger on why. I was was re-watching it, and I, you know, was kind of looking for things that I liked about it. With all of these nitpicks that I had and all of these scenes that I thought didn't entirely make sense, I still can't put my finger on what I liked about it, but just the whole... I guess this is the case of the whole being more than the sum of its parts because put it all together and I really enjoyed it. Good. And one other thing that we would both really enjoy, James and myself, is if you would contribute to the conversation on this podcast going forward. We urge you to do so. I said it before. I'll say it again. Email us at vintagepicard at gmail.com. Tweet at us, Instagram, Facebook. We are Vintage Picard. Subscribe to this podcast. Please, we beseech you. 
Subscribe to the podcast so we can grow this. Tell your friends if you like it. We're sitting here, we're doing this one way or the other, but the more people we can get in on this thing, the better we can make it. Tell us what you want to hear. Tell us what you don't want to hear. Tell us what we can do better and tell everybody else if you like it. So we would really thank you to do that. If you haven't done so, please consider rating us on Apple Podcast or any other podcatcher that you may use. A rating for a podcast like ours, which is really young and really unknown, would go a very long way, especially if it was a, uh, let's say, on the larger side. So we would ask you to consider that and give us, you know, whatever rating you think is fair. Although, if you wanted to give us a five-star rating, I wouldn't complain. But I'm not going to ask you to do anything that you're not comfortable with because... You know, that's not how we roll here at the podcast. What we do do is review a new episode of Star Trek Picard each and every week here on Vintage Picard. And so shall it be next week. And we look forward to you joining us again for that next week. But for this week, that is going to do it for another episode of Vintage Picard. Until we get to talk to you again, we would bid you safe journeys, my friend. Please choose to live. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Let's all go be unconscious now. <laughs> all right, buddy. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Aloha. It's the best. <laughs>